we're studying through the book of Judges. Um, I've got a few resources that are out at the Connection Center. They're on the sermon outline, Connections. There's some links there. Um, if you haven't been around, or if you just need some review, there's a, an article out, uh, out there um, that is on the structure of Judges and another one by the same uh, scholar on the purpose of Judges. And then there's a brief article by Barry Webb, who I've quoted a lot during this series, um, on the, the women in Judges. Um, women in Judges is a fascinating study because... At the beginning of the book, I'm going to highlight some women who were really honored and who are um, exemplary women. By the time you get to the book, just like there's a downward spiral with the men, there's some women who become really problematic in the book. I'm not going to talk about them today. Just want to let you know. Not going to talk about them today. Um, To give you a little just review on the structure of the book, uh, Mark Buddha says this, while the central core of the book of Judges, these stories about the Judges, is dominated by this repeated cyclical pattern established in the second introduction. And that pattern is the Israelites sin, um, they are, find themselves in, op, in oppression and servitude, uh, they cry out to the Lord, probably not really repentant, but just crying out. The Lord sends them a Savior, there's a time of rest, and then the cycle repeats again and again and again. Twelve times in the book of Judges, six of them really highlighted. It's important to notice that this cyclical pattern follows a downward spiral as the situation worsens. I'm going to show you that in just a little bit. The people become less active in seeking Yahweh, and the behavior of the judge or deliverer becomes increasingly erratic, especially from Gideon on. There's really a turn. The, the first judge, Othniel, who we're going to talk about a little bit today, um, he's really the model, and from there, everything begins to slide downhill. Um, Mark Boda, the same commentator, says this. In recent years, there's been two major contenders for the dominant theme of the book. The first being kingship, they needed a king. And the second being assimilation, they were looking like the Canaanites. One needs to question, however, whether it is necessary to choose between these two themes. What's happening in the book of Judges is, is we're seeing that the people of God are looking more like the people of the world. And, and that continues to develop more and more and more through the book. And we're just about ready to hit a section where th- there's going to be this repeated phrase, there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. They had these judges and deliverers, but they needed a king. And then they're going to get some kings, but they don't need the kind of kings they get. They need King Jesus. Structurally, here's how the book flows together. This is the Bible project. Um, the, be- the beginning of the book begins with these two stories that talk about Israel's failure both militarily and morally. After the, this double introduction that begins with their failures, um, we get this major big section in the middle that have all of our judges' stories, the guys that you, you recognize as famous, Ehud and Gideon and, and Samson. Then at the end, there's this double introduction that parallels the uh, double conclusion that parallels the introduction. Uh, the introduction has the failures militarily and then the failures morally. The conclusion is going to have the failures morally and then end with the failures um, militarily. So it's going it's to be this pattern that, that develops. In between, we've got all these judges' stories, and they start off with a few good judges. Um, then we get some who were kind of okay. Then we get some bad judges, and we are actually in the middle of the story of the worst judge. It's the longest set of stories about Samson, and he is the pinnacle of the decline, okay? He, he, is, he is the worst. So in the context 
of this book, I'm going to deliver a Mother's Day message. Okay? Now, this message, um, I want you to understand with a couple of viewpoints in mind. Um, women can be viewed and have been viewed historically um, often as victims, exploited and taken advantage of by men. And you're going to see that in the book of Judges. We've already seen it a little bit with Jephthah's daughter. When we get to the end of it, the women are so horribly mistreated um, that it's difficult to read. They are totally victims near the end of the book. Women have also been portrayed as vixens, um, evil, responsible for everything that goes wrong. Um, We're going to see that next week when Shane delivers the last message in the Samson cycle, and he talks about Delilah. Um, She truly is a vixen. Now, Samson's got his own problem. He's hanging out with a vixen. This this is a problem. Uh, But that's not my point today. But the the Bible also presents women as victors, all, all of that. And in the book of Judges, we're going to see, and this is where I'm going to focus, is on valued and capable women who can do some great things. Now again, the book is declining, so I'm going to use all my illustrations from the beginning of the book. Um, In the article by Barry Webb about women and judges, he makes this comment. In general, the way women feature in judges is in line with the way they are viewed in the Bible as a whole. They are not stereotyped as either good or bad, passive or active, wise or foolish, but are shown as exhibiting the same basic traits of character and capacities for good or ill as men are. Women can do some bad things. Women can do some great things, just like men. And in the book of Judges, we are focusing on these men who are supposed to be deliverers, who are doing these horrible things that get worse and worse and worse. Um, Another woman in her study of women in Judges, Susan Ackerman, she says this, in the end, there's no easy categorizing of Judges. It's neither a handbook of patriarchy nor a celebration of matriarchy. It doesn't elevate men or women. It can neither be condemned as a remorseless portrait of relentless women-hating, nor can it be heralded as an archaic precursor of 20th century feminism. It paints no picture of a world of men alone, but it portrays no women's garden of paradise either. It is, if anything, a book not of either or, but of both and, a book that both glorifies the deeds of men and embraces the tales of women. So the book of Judges is going to be an equal opportunity book. Some men and some women are, are lifted up as exemplary. But for the most part, the book of Judges is showing this decline and the need for a king. Um, it, it's going to show women more and more assimilating to the pattern of the world and the need for there to be not just a deliverer like a Samson, not just a king like Saul or David, but a divine king like Jesus Christ. That's what's going on in the book of Judges. So you may be asking, well, I'm not a mom. How do I listen to this? Uh, Let me give you some examples and some application from the very beginning here. Um, I really think as you listen to this message, some of this can be aspiration. You can be a godly woman, no matter your age. There's some aspiration here. You can act like some of these godly women that we see in the book of Judges. There's also an application of appreciation. (laughs) Honor the godly women in your life. When you see the traits that I'm going to talk about from some of these women and judges, honor them for that. And some intentionality. Um, Maybe training your children to marry godly women. Find women who exhibit these traits. 
So let's start off with the first woman in Judges that I want to highlight, and her name is Aksa. Um, spelled a lot of different ways. You can spell that with a K, with a C-H. You can spell it with a C, but her name is Aksa. And she is a very noble woman in chapter 1, and, and she's a worthy bride of the first judge, Othniel. And here's the lesson I would draw from the life of Aksa. A godly woman, sometimes way more than men, has a clear vision for the future and an urgent awareness of the need for provision. Sometimes women just get the feel of what's ahead for them. Um, we're going to talk a lot about Aksa here. Mary Evans says this about Aksa. Uh, Aksa emerges as a competent and capable woman, the first of several such depicted within the book of Judges. We're, we're going to just highlight four, but she's the first one, and she's depicted as this really capable woman. Here's the story in chapter 1. From there, they're talking about military campaigns. From there, they advanced, advanced against the people living near Deber, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kinez, Caleb's probably cousin, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. She was this great reward. Um, if you'll remember, it is Joshua and Caleb who are these um, really uh, wonderful men in the book of Judges who go in and they, they conquer the land. They're also the two, the two spies when they're sent into the, the promised land, the, the ones that come back and say, um, the giants are big and the challenge is huge, but our God is, is able to, to meet the challenge. And now um, Caleb is offering his daughter in marriage to the person who will go capture this city. And so Othniel goes and he does it. One day, when she, Aksa, came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? This is her dad. What can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Um, they got some land because he conquered the city. But now... Um, she's talking to her husband and she says, hey, I, I, can you urge dad to, to give us some fields? Not just the city that he gave us, but the fields. And, and when she has the opportunity to talk to her dad, she doesn't just ask for the field because it's in the Negev. And if you know anything about biblical geography, the Negev is kind of the desert area. <laughs> and she says, don't just give us the desert area. Make sure that we get some springs because we're going to need water for our family and our herds. Everything is all about where these springs are. Uh, we would probably think of these springs as an oasis. Give us a couple of the oases. Um, in this, I see that Aksa is not just like a guy, okay, I'll conquer the city, give me the woman. Okay, that's all we need. She's saying, no, look, what we, we've got some land. We need something that's going to take care of our family. She has a clearer vision of the future. Uh, I'm going to wear you out with a couple of quotes about Aksa. Lawson Younger says this, Aksa is the first woman mentioned in Judges, and her exceptional spiritual qualities are greatly extolled. Not a lot is, is talked about here, but her exceptional spiritual qualities is that she sees the need, and she sees it very clearly, and she makes the request for it. 
Abe Caravilla says, so here is the first woman in the book of Judges, a remarkable lady, keen on obtaining the best of her in, for her inheritance, family, and posterity with the community of Israel. Aksa emerges as an image of the ideal Yahwist woman and becomes the standard by which all other women in the book will be judged. And she really is. She's kind of the foil for all the other women in the book. Barry Webb says, Aksa greatly enhances the value of the land by negotiating successfully for water rights, something of great importance given the predominantly dry nature of the area. Let me just make this applicable. Um, guys, we'll get the land, build the house. But who makes it look homey? Who makes it look nice? Who makes it um, a place you really want to get back to and, and live? Gentlemen, if it weren't for the women, we'd still be living in caves. Just trust me. The women have the the vision for what could be. The women have the vision for what could be and and how to turn it into home. Dale Davis says, at least Oxford was sharp enough to know that they would need, need guaranteed water rights for such land, and she pressed her father to grant it. Again, Lawson Younger says this, in the more extended narrative of the book of Judges, Oxus serves as a contrast in two, two important ways. As a positive paradigm of a daughter being given to an Israelite hero, or to an ideal hero, she is juxtaposed, contrasted with the notice of Israel's apostasy in intermarrying with the inhabitants of the land. Um, she's a noble woman, and the Israelites were intermarrying with the, the pagan women. The contrast between Oxus and Delilah could not be more stark Aksa was the wife of Othniel, who will be described later in the book as the ideal judge in chapter 3. Delilah was the consort of Samson, the worst of the judges. Good men usually end up with good women. Bad men often end up with bad women. Next week, Shane's going to talk to you about Samson and Delilah. The contrast could not be more clear. Here's a godly woman who was a noble wife worth fighting for, not like Delilah. And here's a woman who who sees the needs of her family, and she takes action to go and make sure that their needs are met. Lastly, Mary Evans says this, given the structure of the judges as a whole, it seems much more likely that the story is deliberately placed here at this beginning to stand as a contrast to the treatment of Jephthah's daughter in chapter 11, and in particular to the treatment of the women in the final chapters of the book, where they are truly victims. Women are going to be victimized, mistreated horribly in the book of Judges. But that's not their only role. Women can stand up, and women can say, I see a bigger need, I see a bigger picture, and follow the Lord. We're going to highlight another woman here, Deborah. We've talked about Deborah at length. We spent a number of messages talking about Deborah. She was a prophetess, a leader of God's people. And I think what we see here is that in chaotic times, in these judges where everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, there's oppression, there's war on every hand. In chaotic times, godly women can often see the will of God more clearly and lead the praise of the Lord more passionately. See the will of God more clearly is chapter 4. Lead the praise of God more passionately is chapter 5. In Judges chapter 4, we're going to read this. Now Deborah, whose name means honeybee, a prophet, she's a prophet, she's speaking for the Lord. The wife of Lipidoth, which his name means torches, was leading Israel at that time. 
she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She was the wise person that would help decide their disputes. She sent for Barak, whose name means lightning. We mentioned it, he's not very fast. He's always slow. Son of Abinoam from Kedesh in Naphtali. And said to him, this is Deborah now sending for uh, Barak. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. He's He's the military leader, but it's Deborah who has to say, listen, the Lord's speaking to me. He's told me clearly what you need to do. And she's the one who commands him, go do this. Go get it done. She sees the will of God. And she is the one who's urging and pursuing that. At some point, I um, would have to show it to you a little more clearly. In 1 Peter um, chapter 3, this is the role that a woman has. She sees the will of God and she behaves in a way to get her husband to follow the will of God. The passage starts off, if you're married to a man who's not obedient to the word, live in such a way that you win him over without words. Women, your calling in life is to see clearly God's will and get those around you to move toward that. Um, Michelle Knight says, uh, from the outset of Judges 4, the narrator cast Deborah primarily as a spokesperson and representative of Yahweh. But now let me make something really clear that we highlighted when we were going through these passages. Yahweh is the hero of these stories. Even though Deborah does some great things, Yahweh is the hero of the story. This is the outline of chapter 4. It's a huge chiastic outline. And in the middle, the thing that is highlighted is that Yahweh routed the army. He is the victor. But Deborah is the one who had the spiritual sensitivity to know God's going to give us the victory, and she called Barak to get involved in the battle. She she saw the will of God, and she moved them to it. And then what she does, we're going to see it in just a moment, what she does is in chapter 5, she sings a song of praise that extols God. Deborah commands Barak to get involved in the battle in chapter 4, and then she sings a praise about the victory in chapter 5. She is a woman who sees God's will, and she leads people into praising God. She's a godly woman. Two women I've chosen to put together here are Jael, who, if you remember, she's the one who's going to kill Sisera. We'll look at that. And the woman of Thebes, Uh, The woman of Thebes is the woman who drops the stone on Abimelech's head. Um, At least give me some credit. Quietly hammering home a hard lesson. That's just great. In these chaotic times as well, godly women often step into difficult positions and accomplish great victories for the Lord. Here's what we read. Uh, Sisera, this is in chapter 4, Deborah has called Barak into the battle. Barak has started the, um, the battle. Sisera, the commander of the other army, has, is getting away. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. 
Because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Again, we talked about how it's like she's treating him like a little child. Here's your blankie. Are you thirsty, he said. Uh, I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened up a skin of milk. She's got a blanket and some milk for him now. She covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there? Say no, cover for me. But now here's what happens. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Yes! This is a godly woman who understands that she's in a very difficult situation and she takes the enemy out. Now, really quickly, this is not a husband-wife scenario. Okay? Just, it is not. Um, But it is a situation where a woman finds herself in a really difficult place and she steps into it and she does something very difficult but she's following the will of God. Mary Evans says, in modern society, JL's actions could be seen as excessively violent and inappropriate behavior, particularly for a woman. However, we must be aware of introducing questions that would not have been under, uh, understood in their original context. In general, to kill an enemy in the course of a war would never have been seen as inappropriate. Um, in our day, there are certain people, if they escaped and were running away, we'd be fine with putting them to death. But Jael's not the only woman who finds herself in a difficult situation where she has to participate in some really uncomfortable ways. We also have this woman of Thebes. She's unnamed. I don't know why she's not named, but she's another woman who in chaotic times steps into a difficult position and is part of this great victory for the Lord. Here's her story in chapter 9. Next, Abimelech, who is this guy who set himself up as a king. He's the son of Gideon, not a judge. He's a thug. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and the women, all the people of the city had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up in the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower and set set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Again, yes! These women are hammering home truths. This is what she probably uh, dropped on his head. Maybe one a little bit smaller than this because it was up on the top of the the roof. Um, But here here are two women who have stepped into really difficult circumstances. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Um, I mean, this guy... He doesn't want to be killed by a woman, but he was killed by a woman. We all know that. Sometimes women have to step into some really difficult situations. And that's true in our days today. Women are often forced to step into really, really difficult situations. Often situations they didn't create themselves. And in those situations, women are capable of of standing up and doing great things for the Lord. I'm going to circle back around. I'm going to circle back around uh, to J.L. Because she is highlighted in Deborah's song of victory. The story is told in chapter 4. The poem is talked about and the song is sung in chapter 5. And in the song highlighting the victory, J.L. is highlighted. 
And there's a contrast in the poem between those who did not participate and J.L., who's the ideal participator. In these chaotic times, godly women are blessed when they unhesitatingly participate in the victories of the Lord. Again, chapter 5 is is set up as this great poem. And again, in the middle of it, the true hero is the Lord who who wins the victory. But in the structure of all of this, we went through this when we preached through these these passages. Um, In the structure of all of this, there's a contrast between those who don't participate and there's a harsh indictment for them because Barak called a number of the tribes to come help in the battle and some of them didn't go. And those tribes that did not go are contrasted with the participation of Jael. Here's her story. Most blessed of women be Jael, of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk, which was a delicacy. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At, his, at her feet he sank, he fell. There he lay, at her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Here's the poem of it. <laughs> she gave, she brought, she reached out, she hammered, she crushed, she shattered, she pierced, he died. He sank, he fell, he lay, he sank, he fell, he sank, he lay, dead. This is a woman who is participating in God's story. In both chapter 4 and chapter 5, God is the hero of all that is going on. And she is elevated as um, the, the one person who is blessed for participating in God's story. There are some other tribes that did participate. Barak did show up for the battle, but none of them are highlighted as the one who is, who, who, the one who is blessed. It's Jael. Because she saw a difficult situation, and she brought her godly integrity to that and did something difficult as a part of God's victory. So here's how I'd land this message. The Lord blesses honors and highlights godly women anybody who is telling you that the bible is a book that is about the mistreatment of women has lost their mind and not read the bible yes women can be horrible like delilah women can be victimized like the woman in chapter 19 but the bible equally blesses honors and highlights godly women who are passionate participants participants in his stories of redemption often calling others to be involved often seeing more clearly the future than those around them do often making the request for what is really needed for lives to flourish this is what godly women do they see the future clearly they call others to participate in it they do very difficult things very frequently and they are blessed by god So here's some next steps. (laughs) I've tried to do this throughout the book of Judges to give you a truth, a warning, and a challenge. The the truth is this. God blesses and honors women, and we should as well. Godly women should be blessed and honored. 
You should be looking for opportunities for when the women around you see God's will more clearly than maybe you did. Look for opportunities to highlight and to honor and to bless women who step into difficult situations and do what God asks them to do. Bless and honor, um, encourage women who are participating in God's big story of redemption. And that may be in small ways, it may be in big ways, but women who are participating in God's big story of redemption, they're involved in it. Honor them, bless them. Here's a warning for some men, by the way. When men do not lead like God calls them to, women will step into the vacuum and lead well. That's not a threat, it's just a reality. When, when, when men are not the men that God calls them to be, and in this culture that's becoming more and more true, and in the church more and more true, that we don't have men stepping up, being men, and leading. When men hang back, Deborah and Jael and some woman from Febez will step in and do what God needs to get done. So for all of us, no matter whether you're a man or you're a woman, be a willing participant. Be a willing and a passionate participant in the story of God. And like Deborah in chapter 5, in the praise of God. That's what God calls us to do.